Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a left-wing firebrand, an MP for two different parties, one of which he was a leader, and most important, Man United fan, George Galloway. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of your work, really. Uh, and you're a broadcaster, which I forgot to add. Uh, yeah, you were on my show. It was very kind. Uh, a very popular segment, actually. Uh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Very popular. Well, I, yeah. we're both surprised about that. But uh, it, it was, thank you for having me. And actually, one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about is something you and I very much talked about at the time, which was... Uh, this and you and I had a lot of agreement, but this maybe was an era where we were trying to work out what each other was saying, which is I was talking about cancel culture, and you yourself have been attacked physically when speaking on university campus by trans activists, and we were sort of trying to find common language about what seems to have happened on what I perceive as the left. Uh, there seems to have become the sort of intolerance almost that's crept in the idea which is very counter to your values as I perceive them, which is if you don't agree with people, you, you debate, you, you express yourself in strong, confident terms, and that is how you conduct that conversation. So what is it that's happened in, in this area of, of debate, conversation, language, everything seems to be sort of, uh, you've got to be very careful, you can't offend people. You can't. Well, what's your take on that? Well, uh, I think uh, we, uh, in feeling towards common language on this, uh, we had a disagreement, which we're about to have again now. <laughs> I don't regard these people as being on the left. If, or, or if that's the left, I'm not on it. Mm. Uh, which would I, make them very happy to hear. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a difference between what I call liberalism, mm -hmm. with a small l, uh, and the left, or at least there ought to be. Uh, and that ranges from the philosophical, uh, through the economic, uh, political, uh, and also on, on social values. So, for example, I am socially conservative in every respect. Uh, I don't drink. I hate drugs. I believe in marriage. I believe in the country. I'm patriotic. I believe in the armed forces and so on. None of these are liberal traits and they ought to be a difference between the left and the liberals mm. uh, who don't like the family much generally, think it's old hat, uh, although most of them live in monogamous relationships. They don't want to theorize that as being a good thing. Uh, they, would, they would attack you if you tried to theorize that. Uh, they, uh, they seem to believe in the stupefaction of the masses where everyone uh, takes a drag and drops out, uh, which is the very antithesis of the kind of political activism that I think is needed uh, in the country. Uh, but you're right. They have become identified as the left. Mm. They identify themselves as the left. The media identifies them as the left. And ergo, the left is really unpopular amongst the mass of the people in the country who don't look like them, live like them, think like them, talk like them. Uh, and that's a problem. It means that someone like me has to explicitly say, well, if that's the left, I'm not in it. Or the more difficult thing to do, to attack the idea that they are the left. Now, as you rightly identified right at the beginning, 
the cancel culture has enveloped, not just denying someone like you platforms, but someone like me. Or on the women's front, someone like my old friend Germaine Greer. She is persona non grata. She is not allowed to appear on any university campus. Although probably like me, her reaction to that has been, well, stick your university <laughs> campuses. I would no longer, maybe, Ox maybe the Oxford Union because the security is good, but I wouldn't go to any other uh, university meeting. And I'm invited to them all the time, at least every week. Um, but I wouldn't go because once, once cancelled, twice shy. <laughs> or in my case, once physically attacked, uh, twice shy. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, ran into similar difficulties. He's on the right of politics, though I agree with him on quite a few things. Uh, I'm on the left of politics, and we're both effectively not welcome in Britain's universities. Now, that's bad for me because I don't get the chance to proselytize for my beliefs amongst young people who will amongst whom will be people who will be journalists and politicians and uh, opinion makers and formers uh, in the future. But it's also bad for them uh, because it means that the bandwidth of the ideas that they are being exposed to uh, is incredibly narrow. And that means we get another generation then that are inculcated with these uh, ideas which are coming from liberals, but are, of course, entirely illiberal in any normal definition uh, of the word. Um, so I believe in freedom of speech, not just because I think the people hearing it will be the better for it, but because if we don't have freedom of speech, even someone like me gets cancelled. And uh, that's, I think, where we are. Uh, in this country. Now, I blame the Americans. You may, you may say, where did all this come from? You may think it emerged in the, in the 21st century or even in the latter part of the 20th century, but actually I was there when it emerged. I saw it because I'm older than I look. <laughs> I, uh, I saw it coming across the sea from the 1968ers. Uh, their ideas throughout the 70s began to seep across the ocean and change the nature of left-wing politics in Britain, and I presume elsewhere, though I don't have direct uh, evidence of that, but I presume that in other European countries, this seepage also occurred. And I always joke about it. I knew that the British Labour movement would go into decline when at our weekend schools and summer schools, we ceased to sit in rows and listen to leaders and began to sit in circles uh, where Big Tom of Facebook's views were as important <laughs> as Tony Benz. Mm -hmm. And Tony had no right to speak more than Big Tom from Facebook. Uh, I, I knew that this would uh, lead to no good, and it has. And George, you... We've talked about the left. We've talked about, you say that these people aren't on the left, but yet everybody seems to identify them as being part of the left. Do you think that the left is therefore in crisis as a result of these people? Totally. Uh, the left, as defined 
and largely perceived, though we're trying to change that, uh, is in the existential crisis of being regarded by the people it hopes to lead as alien, as foreign, as repulsive, actually. Uh, so I don't know that you can do it entirely geographically because there are many parts of London even, never mind the South, uh, that uh, are uh, in that uh, bag. But the farther, generally speaking, the farther north you go in the country, the more alien these people seem. And it seems to me a sine qua non of seeking to lead people, seeking to get their votes, uh, obtain their trust, and then lead them in a certain direction. It's quite important that they are, that you are not seen by them as someone who hates them, who hates their country, hates its history, hates its culture. Uh, because, well, at the very least, they're not going to vote you, for you if they think that's what you think of them. And at worst, it produces a recoil, uh, a backlash, in which other populists from the far right can win an audience and uh, traction amongst the people that have been repelled by you. So crisis, absolute crisis. And do you therefore think that if you look at the Labour Party as it is now, where you've got these activists on one side, you've got Keir Starmer on another, don't you look at the Labour Party and think this isn't viable long term as a political party? You can't, you simply can't hold these two types of people and everybody else within one political and organization. And then throw Blue Labour into the mix as well. Yeah, yeah. Got a- I, 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 I thought that for a very long time. Um, and electorally, that is proving to be the case. My problem is I'm not with either. Uh, <laughs> I'm not with Starmer and I'm not with Corbyn. Uh, I'm, I'm not with the, the ragged, unwashed successor generations to the 1968ers. Neither am I with the centrists. I was thinking over, because this is the death anniversary of Che Guevara, I was thinking over, the centrists have no heroes. I pity that. I pity them for that. Who's your hero? Keir Starmer? (laughs) (laughs) A block of wood? Uh, So wooden the birds are trying to nest in it? Uh, Or is it a guy that looks like, acts like, lives like, he's just emerged from a student squat? And that is the dichotomy that, that the traditional left now possesses or is in the grip of. Uh, And for someone like me, who's not with either of these trends, it's it's a lonely furrow. Mm. Um, It's not lonely in that a lot of people agree with me, but it's lonely in the sense that in an organized way, most of what is thought of as the left is alien to me. That's not where I expected to find out, find myself. Mm when I started out <laughs> in the 1960s. Well, one of the things this obviously creates in terms of certainly British politics is that we've, we've had a conservative government for 10 years. I've been very, in terms of voting, I've been very politically promiscuous in my life. I voted everything from Lib Dem to for you when I was living in this area to uh, voting for the conservatives for the first time in my life at the last election. And you look at 
the Conservatives now, you have to say that they're completely useless, but you don't see them being credibly challenged at the next election, even now, because we don't have a credible opposition. Where does that leave the country? Uh, up the creek without a paddle. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we have not faced a potentially existential crisis like this since the summer of 1940, when Hitler was at the Channel Ports, when the Soviet Union hadn't entered the war, and where any day the fascist hordes could have landed uh, on the southern coast. We really have not faced a crisis like this. Not just the public health crisis, but the economic crisis which accompanies it. And we have a government that is, to continue the watery metaphor, lost at sea. And we have uh, an opposition which is probably not even a scintilla better than the, uh, than the government that's lost at sea. And that is a very difficult place to find yourself. In 1940, Churchill stepped forward. The uh, ineffectual, inept uh, throwback to a previous century of the Chamberlain clique was overthrown and, and the rest is history. But there's no Churchill in this picture. Uh, there's no Churchill in the House of Commons. There's not even an Attlee in the, in the House of Commons. There's nothing that you could say we could get behind this part, this person, these people, this, this plan. Not at all. Uh, on the contrary, I think we're heading again to continue the watery metaphor into very turbulent times indeed, turbulent waters. And you've just, mentioned that we don't have a church, we don't even have an athlete. In fact, we were talking with Peter Hitchens, and he was saying that there's no big beasts of politics left anymore. Why do you think that is, George? Why do you think that we don't have, even Thatcher, who you would probably ardently, well, not probably, disagree with, you can't deny that she was a force sure. of nature. Uh, and not only was she, uh, there was 100 or 150 such big mm. beasts when I entered Parliament just over 30 years ago, 33 uh, years ago, uh, you could look around and your mouth would open. That's Michael Heseltine going past. That's Tony Benn. That's Dennis Healy, Peter Shore, uh, um, and so on. And that's not ancient history. That's only 1987. So Thatcher, of course, was uh, a big beast, a formidable figure. And now there are no Thatchers, no Bens, no Shores. Uh, so what's happened? I put it down to the, 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 the death of ideology. The uh, belief in an alternative society died with the, with the Soviet collapse. Uh, not that the left in Britain was pro-Soviet, but the existence of the Soviet Union at least implied that there was another way that you could run things. Uh, that died. The left, the labor movement, completely lost confidence, lost hope, uh, turned to the EU, uh, turned to Jacques Delors, from, from Lenin to Jacques Delors is a long <laughs> way. Uh, they, uh, they sought uh, a, a kind of corporatist uh, protection uh, from, the, from the EU. Uh, and the, with the, the, the death of Thatcherism, well, Thatcherism not really dead, but with the passing from power 
of Mrs. Thatcher and her replacement by a desiccated calculating machine uh, called John Major, but one whose <laughs> batteries were running out. Uh, uh, the, the, the whole thing went downhill from there. Labour's conclusion was that they needed uh, to find uh, a tailor's dummy that could talk, and they came up with Tony Blair. I was there. Uh, I was on John Prescott's <laughs> leadership team. That's how bad the choice was. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Tony Blair uh, romped home and uh, with predictable results. So Labour marched across the political terrain uh, and the Tories followed them. Uh, the, the Tories are Blairites, really. Mm. Uh, so Thatcherism has very much been succeeded by Blairism, the Labour brand and the Tory uh, Brand. Mm. What was David Cameron, if not a kind of Tony Blair without the laughs? Uh, <laughs> he was Ersatz Blair, um, and uh, I'm, I had some hope that uh, that Boris Johnson would would prove uh, different. He hasn't really. I mean, Boris Johnson, despite all the epithets that are hurled at him. It's actually quite a liberal figure yep. uh, with liberal ideas on on the economy and society. And he certainly lived the high liberal life. <laughs> <laughs> He's a party man, not that kind of party. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but hasn't proven to be competent, uh, which, you know, look, I, maybe if we didn't have a global pandemic and a massive economic crisis to deal with, he would have been the sort of cheerleader that, that sort of saw the country through Brexit and minor obstacles in its path. Mm. But it's the time, as you say, for Churchills and Thatchers, and we don't have any at the moment, which I think should worry everybody. When we started this show two and a half years ago, we had one dream, and that dream is now fulfilled. Finally, after all that hard work, we're advertising B-Days. And it's not just any B-Days, it's Scoosh B-Days. And not just Scoosh B-Days, these are B-Day attachments. Which means that if you don't have the space in your toilet for a B-Day, maybe because you're a northerner, you can get an attachment and it's dirt cheap, no pun intended, and it's far more hygienic for you to clean yourself with. It's dead easy to install, it's environmentally friendly, and finally, since we're running out of paper, it's the perfect solution. Absolutely. So if you want the hygienic and save the planet as well alternative to toilet paper, go to skoosh.shop. That's skoosh.shop for all your B-Day needs. Skoosh B-Day are offering all trigonometry fans a 10% discount. Just head over to their website and enter our code, which is T-P-O-D-1, to get your amazing discount. That's T-P-O-D-1 to get 10% off a beta. So glad we finally achieved our dreams. <sighs> but we do have some real problems ahead, don't we, George? Uh, I don't know what your take is on the, on, on the response to the pandemic, actually. Let's talk about that briefly. What do you make of how we're dealing well, with it now? Being half an Irishman, I'm entitled to say, as the apocryphal Irishman asked the road and distance to Dublin, I wouldn't have started from here. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we're in a big mess now because we didn't start uh, where we ought to have started. Uh, 
Uh, I was opining just yesterday, it's proved uh, quite a successful tweet, uh, that there are more uh, coronavirus cases in the White House than there are <laughs> in New Zealand, Taiwan, uh, and South Korea put together. Uh, there's uh, China and South Korea and Vietnam and New Zealand, disparate ideological, social, political systems. There's virtually no coronavirus. It's been vanquished. And yet we are in a state of panic. The United States still more so, although only marginally more so, considering the difference in the size of the countries. Uh, and that's because we didn't do what South Korea did at the uh, very beginning, which was to uh, absolutely uh, go to war, uh, immediately mobilize their population, their public health system, and their economy uh, to, to fight this thing. And they have done it so successfully that you can get a test for the coronavirus at the bus stop, literally on the bus stop. I don't know if you blow into it or suck it or what you do, <laughs> but it's there on the bus stop. I, at 66, could not get, for love nor money, a test about four weeks ago when I had a cough and thought, I probably better get a test. <laughs> I could not get one. I couldn't get through on the website. I couldn't get through on the emergency number. I couldn't find anybody even that would take my money to give me one. Mm. That's how far away from South Korea we are uh, on this. New Zealand, of course, a bit of a special case because of the sparsity of the population and so on, although Scotland is comparable to New Zealand uh, in many uh, such respects. And Scotland is worse than England. Glasgow is the worst place in the country. So we've gone about this entirely the wrong way. Uh, and that's partly a consequence uh, of the rundown in the public health system uh, over the last 20 or more years. Uh, but it's also about this failure of leadership. We, we live in a country, as many other countries, where nobody believes the leaders even when they're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody gets, there's no mobilization. There's no sense of us. And always, that we are a people, a country, a state, with leaders, warts and all. We must follow them. There's no sense of that in Britain. So we had a substantial number, a weird left-right crossover uh, of uh, deniers uh, hmm. that uh, stretched from libertarians who'd rather die than wear a mask uh, to left-wing idiots who thought it was all a conspiracy uh, by Bill Gates, the hapless Bill Gates, who became the new Rothschild. You just had to say his name and nod and wink. <laughs> uh, uh, that weird crossover existed. And it was noisy on social media. But if we'd had a strong leadership and a strong state, uh, then we would have been able to rally everyone behind us. And we would have been able to count on people. See, it would be far better if you could count on 65 million people to do the right thing. You wouldn't need fines. Mm. You wouldn't need, you, you didn't have to find people in the Second World War in the East End of London to make sure they had blackout 
uh, in their windows, uh, that they weren't uh, showing light to the bombers coming. Not, not a mile from here, uh, this place was all on fire, completely on fire. So there was no need because the people believed in the country's leadership. They believed in the concept of a country and us. We have lost that. So where we go from here, I've really got no idea. Nothing that they are doing is working. They're throwing money around like uh, like the magic money tree was in <laughs> every street. I saw figures the other day on uh, testing, tracking, and tracing. Ireland has spent £733,000, and we have spent twelve billion billion pounds and where is it where's the tests where's the tracking where's the tracing uh this has been either a gigantic organized scam to make uh, a few people exceedingly rich or it is the most incompetent shit show ever seen in these islands uh because how you manage to spend 12 billion pounds on a system that is practically invisible, it's very difficult to compute. And yet, it goes back to Constantine's point as well, that you look over at the opposition and they don't seem to have any ideas either. No. In fact, when Keir Starmer is asked what he'd do, he'd pretty much do the same as Boris. Carte blanche. He's given them carte blanche. And then worse, as Boris points out quite effectively, actually, what, what are you complaining about? You supported it last week. <laughs> you gave us your full support on this two weeks ago. I saw him yesterday or in the house uh, Wednesday. Uh, he said, uh, but, but this complaint you're making is about the very thing you supported not two weeks ago. Uh, so for me, Starmer is worse in the sense that uh, you've got the opportunity as an opposition because you don't have responsibility to explore different uh, uh, different ways, in all directions, by the way. Uh, I'm ready to listen to an argument that says, now that we are where we are, we might as well stop uh, trying to fight it. We might as well face it, <laughs> uh, because the situation is so bad. I'm ready to hear that argument. And an opposition is in a position to explore these things. But Starmer seems to me like a guy who's strapped himself into a straitjacket uh, and is uh, merely going through the motions of opposition. And I see he's sliding again in the, in the polls. Boris, despite everything, has risen in the latest poll by two points. Um, but I think the feeling in the country is, by God, both of these are jokers. Uh, neither of these, you wouldn't, as we say in Glasgow, you wouldn't send them out for a loaf. <laughs> you wouldn't ask them to go to the shop for a loaf of bread yeah. and have any real confidence that they come back with the right bread, the right change, or even the bread. And you said that we don't have this idea of, of a country, this idea of, you know, as a big society. Do you think the roots of that lie in Thatcherism, that famous quote from Margaret Thatcher, there's no such thing as society? Well, she crystallized it with that uh, uh, address to, of all places, the Church of Scotland, the most 
Twee Presbyterian Assembly anywhere on these islands, she effectively attacked a central tenet of Christianity uh, there. She had balls. But, <laughs> uh, she, um, she crystallized it, but I don't think it begins with, uh, with her. Uh, I think that after the Second World War, Britain felt and was uh, depleted, and there was the, the long period uh, of, uh, after a short period of uh, post-war reconstruction, there was the long period of what we called Butskillism, which was Rab Butler and Hugh Gateskill, two sides of the same coin, where nobody really argued much about the central tenets of how society should be organized, even though it was increasingly liberal uh, through the 60s. Nobody really argued. It wasn't until Thatcher came along uh, that uh, there was any sharp rupture ideologically in Britain. But undoubtedly, if you privatize everything, if you uh, exalt individualism over collectivism, if public becomes bad, private becomes good, uh, if that dichotomy sets in, then you're, you're going to be in less good shape to face it. So take a look at these places I mentioned that have done well. Uh, South Korea, never mind North Korea, right? South Korea is a <laughs> capitalist uh, country, an American ally, uh, but it is an extremely cohesive place. It's a place that marches as one uh, when necessary. It's a place that moves as one. Mm. Uh, and, of course, China is very much the, the, the ultimate expression of that in the world today. And they went, I mean, they fought the coronavirus like it was World War Three, And now they're living totally normal lives, mm. even in Wuhan. And we are scared to go out the door. Our businesses are shutting down. Scotland, uh, this evening at six o'clock, will become a ghost town. And I'm told that Boris is planning the same thing here in England. Um, even alcohol's been banned in Scotland. <laughs> That's not uh, going to end well, is it? <laughs> that cannot end well. Um, so we, we are, this is a dog's breakfast, and I don't have the resources to know exactly uh, where we are and what we should now do, but I'm ready to listen to offers. I'm ready to listen to any idea from credible people about where we go from now. And it may be that that'll be a very different way from the way I advocated strongly at the beginning. Do you have a business? Do you want to make the most of your business? Do you want to advertise online, but don't know where to do it? Well, how about you advertise with Trigonometry? We have over 200,000 subscribers across the different platforms. We sometimes get up to 3 million views a month for our videos. And it's a great opportunity to showcase your product. So if you want your product or business to stand out amidst all the nonsense that is happening, drop us a line at marketing at triggerpod.co.uk. That's marketing at triggerpod.co.uk. And we will do our very best to help your product stand out. And when we say stand out, what we really mean is get cancelled. 
Well, I mean, one of the arguments we've heard on our show from doctors like Dr. Carol Sikora, for example, is actually that the average age of death for someone with COVID in this country is 82. Average life expectancy is 82 and a half. So the people who are dying are mostly people who were were either very ill or very old. Uh, And uh, what you do is you protect those people and let everybody else get on with their lives and then you don't ruin the economy. I mean, that's one of the the options that maybe Keir Starmer should explore as someone who's in opposition has more leeway. Yes. Uh, of course, those numbers, I don't know how long ago you spoke to them, uh, are coming down. The big spike now is amongst young people. Uh, we don't... But that's cases, that's not deaths, right? Yeah, I'm just coming to that. Yeah. We don't yet know where those cases will go. Uh, if they pass uh, with a couple of weeks of misery for the thousands of students who appear to be infected. Uh, By the way, bringing students back to university was a major league disaster. And whoever's responsible for that really should be up against the wall and shot. uh, (laughs) It's the old uh, pro-Soviet instincts uh, coming out there. Because, (laughs) hey, we can communicate with each other quite well without being in the same room. Uh, uh, This has led to, I mean, in the University of Northumbria, they did a mass test, 775 people tested positive. In the University of Glasgow, again, many hundreds, uh, leading to a situation where students have gone to university and are now locked in what is effectively a cell uh, and not allowed to go out, and no point now because even the alcohol is banned at (laughs) 6 o'clock for everybody, never mind you, uh, and so on. So um, the numbers of cases, the numbers of... uh, uh, cases has dramatically spiked amongst young people, and we don't yet know at the time of recording uh, quite how serious they will be. Neither do we know what level of immunity and for how long uh, having caught it will provide you. I'm waiting for my my Sputnik V, uh, Sputnik Five v- uh, vaccine, uh, <laughs> which I've requested from the Kremlin, uh, but they seem to be a bit slow in getting it to me maybe they there's a bit in your they, cup of tea that i made earlier there George. maybe they're worried it might not work and they'll lose a major asset but uh, <laughs> uh, the 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 uh the the vaccine process here seems extremely slow mm. uh mm. cuba has a vaccine china has one russia has one will not buy them for ideological reasons uh so there is a, still a case for uh, quarantining certain sections of the most vulnerable uh, people. Mm. But it's not foolproof that, Constantine, because you can lock up your granny, but you can't lock her up forever. And one grandchild is going to get through. Uh, <laughs> and nobody wants to lose their granny, even if they are 82. Of course. Uh, mm. So I, I'm not with the if you like, with the libertarians uh, on that. But I'm ready for fresh ideas. Uh, But there are few and far between. Yeah, it does appear that we're hitting crisis point. We're not hitting, we've hit crisis point Mm. with the pandemic. The thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, George, is uh, socialism. Because Mm. it seems that we're seeing a bit of a resurgence in people who identify as socialism, We've seen it in America with politicians like AOC. What does socialism mean to you for a start? And then we'll go on and discuss it further. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because 
I started out by explaining what I think is a dichotomy between liberalism mm. and, and socialism. And I'm not a liberal, but I am a socialist. Um, I think it's partly because capitalism isn't working, uh, to paraphrase Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, if you were to do a poster today like hers, when she said socialism wasn't working, it would be a much longer queue. Uh, there's far more people now unemployed under, uh, under the capitalist system than there possibly has ever been. The American unemployment rate is now as high as it was in the 1930s in the Great Depression. There's a wave of evictions on top of that because banks are foreclosing on landlords. Landlords can't get the rent out of the people and result misery. Um, if the United States economy doesn't pick up, I don't believe it will, then we will very shortly in this winter uh, have uh, greater levels of unemployment in the US than we did in the Great Depression. Our bounce back uh, seems to have stalled. Um, our growth rate for August was was 2.1%, despite the most gigantic handout from the state that there has ever been in mm -hmm. Eat Out to Help Out, uh, which may have spread the virus <laughs> and may have stalled the uh, recovery, helped to stall the recovery. Um, so it's quite likely that by this winter, our uh, levels of unemployment will be over 10%. Uh, if you think, well, you're too young to know, but when you be 40, clue being in the name, uh, we're talking about the one in 10, and they were talking about the one in 10 unemployed. Uh, people thought it was something else, but that's what it was. And they're friends of mine. Uh, so it's quite likely that this winter we'll be right back in the, in the depths of depression. And therefore, the famous Thatcher queue is now much bigger. So capitalism isn't working. And therefore, people are looking for an alternative. And the only feasible alternative for me uh, in developed societies with huge populations, which like ours, 65 million is a big population on a piece of land this size, uh, is to organize ourselves in a wholly different way with the state playing a decisive role in the organization of society and the economy, by which I don't mean the nationalization of everything mm. or even necessarily anything. I mean the state with a decisive directing role uh, in what happens. So I'm not in favor, uh, as I always put it, anyone that's ever seen uh, a Bulgarian Communist Party official's suit knows that they're not good at tailoring. <laughs> uh, anyone who's ever been in an Eastern European Soviet era restaurant knows that they're not good at restaurants. There are some things that are too specialist, too small, too, need to be too flexible to be organized by the state. Uh, art, culture, and so on among them. Uh, but there are some things that are too important to be left to a private sector that is manifestly failing. <laughs> so I believe, I, I've, not, I've only been in China a couple of times. I don't know it well. But I would say that the Chinese model of synthesizing 
private enterprise, free enterprise, capitalism, with a strong central role for the state, it's not a surprise to me that the Chinese economy is the most successful economy in the world, that it will very shortly be the biggest. It's been the most transformative in the numbers of people that it has lifted out of poverty. In fact, it's lifted the greatest number of people out of poverty of any system, any country ever uh, in history. And it is now, I was seeing, I did a piece yesterday about the demands of the international financial community for China to be uh, more easy on its debtors. Uh, That's how far they've come, that the World Bank is asking China to forgive debts and rescheduled debts uh, for the poor countries that they have lent money to. That's how rich and powerful and successful China now is. So I would, uh, if I was designing the economy, that is roughly the kind of economy that I would favor. It wouldn't be communism. I'm not a communist. Uh, It wouldn't be the Soviet Union, which was a failure. Uh, It would be something new. And I think the Chinese synthesis is, if I can borrow a phrase from Tony Blair, is the third way. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, you talk about the statistics of unemployment, the economy failing. Obviously, prior to coronavirus, the economy in the United States was ostensibly doing well here the same. But nonetheless, I think the rise of that sort of thinking actually predates the coronavirus, the unemployment that we're seeing and are going to see. Um, and when we talk about capitalism not working, I would say certainly people of our generation and below, uh, it's not so much about the unemployment that, that results from COVID that, that caused that, but perhaps the situation with housing in this country, which for young people is absolutely atrocious. Uh, and also the feeling that perhaps for the first time in living memory, uh, the child, your children will do worse than you are doing, than you did. Uh, that their living standards will be lower, that their access to good jobs, despite half of them now attempting to go to university and racking up massive debts, despite all of that, their life outcomes are going to be worse. So I I would argue that, and I'm not a fan of socialism, by the but I would argue the reason that people are drawn to it Mm. is that we've had these systemic problems that predate the current crisis in a, in a very big way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, and I don't agree that the uh, US and British economies were doing well before the virus. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the recession began before the virus, uh, a month or two before the virus, but it had been coming. Effectively, we slump every seven, eight years. Yep. And therefore, this slump uh, would have happened anyway was overdue and had begun before the virus. But the virus has proved that our vitals are not capable of withstanding shocks, like slump, like recession, like viruses, all of which, by the way, uh, were entirely predictable and predicted. This government, the conservative government, did, uh, how would you call it, an exercise uh, some three years ago, I forget what it was called now, in which they, which was predicated on a coronavirus and quickly had to cover up the exercise uh, because the model basically collapsed under the weight. 
so if you live in a society that cannot with that regularly slumps, that cannot withstand any existential jolt, then that society is not fit for purpose, needs to be changed. The reason why we have a housing crisis is because of capitalism. Again, sorry to play the age card, but I was there. I opposed Mrs. Thatcher's drive uh, to sell off council houses because I knew it would lead to what it has led. And I was one, I was the Labour Party leader in Dundee. We were one of only two or three, two uh, places in the country that refused to sell council houses. The government sent in the bailiffs and a high court judge uh, who was later uh, found to be up to unfortunate things in in a public lavatory somewhere. Uh, uh, We hated him, not for that reason, but because he'd been sent in by Mrs. Thatcher to sell our houses. What we need in Britain is a mass construction, which would be an economic multiplier for a start, of good quality, affordable council housing. Council housing is the best form of housing because you elect your landlord. Your landlord cannot afford to ignore you uh, in a way that a private landlord can. Uh, your, your, your landlord has to listen uh, because you've got a vote and you can vote them out or you can vote their boss out uh, in the local authority. A mass, a mass drive of millions of council houses would transform uh, the situation in Britain. Um, I'm not saying, because I grew up in one, uh, that the, uh, the, the council house estate of the 1960s is the acme. It isn't. Uh, I always favor Titoism over Stalinism. <laughs> uh, and uh, Yugoslavia had many more innovative ways of uh, practicing socialism. Uh, and I like that. Um, so capitalism isn't working. For young people, 50% of our people are going to university, but a very small number of them end up doing anything commensurate with the investment that's been made in their education. Mm. We are, when I was the MP for this very street, the London Olympics Stadium was being built. I stormed in uh, to the minister, the late Tessa Jowell, demanding to know why none of my constituents could get jobs on the uh, site, why everybody that was building it was from Poland or Bulgaria. And she halted me in my tracks by saying that there are no tradesmen unemployed in your constituency. There are just not many tradesmen in your constituency. And that's why we're having to employ them from Poland. This is madness. We've got Thousands of unemployed journalism graduates, Mm. Mm. uh, but we can't build our own Olympic stadium because we don't have enough joiners, glaziers, electricians, plumbers. Uh, That's not a functioning society, a properly functioning society. So on all levels, unemployment, uh, increasing poverty, food insecurity, Mm. the housing crisis, capitalism isn't working. So to... Go back to your question, why would socialism not be something that people were now looking at? 
Of course, socialism had many failures. I don't need to tell you that. Or oh, him, uh, his, his mother's from Venezuela. Okay. Uh, <laughs> socialism has many failures. But so does capitalism. And therefore, we need to find a better way. Mm. And I think that people are increasingly searching for that better way. They just won't find it in Keir Starmer. <laughs> or Jeremy Corbyn, for uh, that matter. And what do you think about the growing inequality between rich and poor? Because it seems that the gap is now bigger than ever. Uh, Constantine and I were in Trafalgar Square about a month ago, and we were shocked to see hundreds of people lining up on Trafalgar Square for a food bank. And these were traditionally people that you wouldn't think would have to queue up to get food handed to them. Well, yesterday I was shooting a film, I wasn't in it, but directing it uh, in Hyde Park, uh, the site of the Great Exhibition. Uh, uh, it was about Charles Dickens. I can't tell you much more than that. But the gap between rich and poor in Britain today is wider than it was when Charles Dickens was writing Oliver Twist. And that's 140 years ago. So if in 140 years you've gone backwards in terms of equality, then you're not doing it right. And what you just described, and that's in the heart of London, in the heart of the empire, uh, I could take you places in the north of England and in some parts of Scotland mm. where life expectancy itself is going backwards, yeah. where people will not just live lives less good than their parents, but they'll live less long than their parents. That's a crisis. And it's one that, nobody is yet addressing, but which the discerning can see is a fundamental crisis. So, and we haven't yet, as Ronald Reagan would say, we ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> uh, if that's Trafalgar Square in the autumn of 2020, wait to February 2021. There could be serious problems. It could be a disruption to social peace in this country because of mass unemployment, and poverty. And it's a very important point, the inequality, because we have a lot of guests on the show from all over the political spectrum, people on the right, people on the left. Uh, I sort of think of myself somewhere in the center, but it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. The, the objective fact is, and the evidence shows this very clearly, the more inequality there is in a Western democracy, the worse that is for everybody, including the rich people. Of course. Even for billionaires, it's of course, worse. Of course. Um, so that how many is, gates can you put on your community? Exactly. Yeah. And how effective can they? Right. If you live in a crime-ridden society where people don't have any food, like you say, it doesn't matter how many gates or doors or whatever, mm. you're not going to have a good life. Uh, and that's something that we're just we're going to have to address, and and finding some some way of doing that is going to be essential. Uh, but George, we wanted to talk to you about one other thing. Can, can I just ask one question before we do, and which is um, how much blame does globalization have to take for this? Uh, a very great deal. Uh, globalization is a deeply flawed idea uh, and it's at the heart of this uh, crisis. We, we can't get PPE. Why? Because it comes 10,000 miles from China. Why? Why can't we make masks, mm -hmm. rubber gloves? This was the workshop of the world. Uh, at the time of the Great Exhibition uh, and Dickens uh, that I was filming yesterday, uh, this was the workshop of the world. We sailed the seven seas in ships of steel 
uh, laden with our manufacturers. And now we can't make rubber gloves. We've got to buy them from 10,000 miles away. Uh, this is a cataclysmic failure. Uh, and the British capitalist class has to uh, take a share of the responsibility for that. But the decline of national control and direction uh, is not just an economic problem. It's a socio-political one. Mm. It's the reason why we voted for Brexit, because we correctly identified that we were no longer in control of anything meaningful uh, in our lives. Not just we weren't, but our government wasn't. Our state wasn't. And that meant that not just the supply lines were too long, but the political command lines uh, were too long. And we couldn't affect them. Uh, and so globalization is hated by people. They don't put it that way, most people. Most people probably never utter the word globalization. But they know it's like the camel, difficult to define, easy to recognize. <laughs> uh, the, the, the people know that far too much of what we buy and consume and eat uh, is coming from somewhere else. And the things that we used to do ourselves are now done by someone else. Uh, and for the profit of a few, I mean, U.S. capital didn't relocate to China because they love uh, chop suey. <laughs> uh, they relocated to China because uh, they could make more money uh, manufacturing in China, leading to the closure of the Rust Belt. And we've got our own Rust Belt here in Britain, roughly coterminous with the, with the Red Wall, which is why Brexit happened, why I knew it would happen why I advocated that it should happen, uh, and why I was entirely unsurprised when it happened, unlike the liberal elite uh, of people who benefit from globalization here. If you live beside me, I'm in the process of moving to Scotland, which is less true there. But in my part of London, why would you not be in favor of the EU? Why would you not be in favor of globalization? You're luxuriating, not just benefiting from it, you're luxuriating in it. But of course, the farther away from that bubble you go, the less attractive the consequences of globalization are. You don't have money for a, for a macchiato. And so it doesn't matter that an attractive barista from Slovenia is serving it to you uh, at an historically low price. Because you don't even know what macchiato is. You don't go to, you don't have a barista. You don't have an au pair. You don't have the money to pay for a Polish electrician uh, to build your basement or your, your extension and so on. And that's the tale, to continue the Dickens point, that's the tale of two cities uh, that we are living in within one country. Globalization is to blame. Mm. It's an issue we've talked a lot about on the show, mm. and, and Brexit is something we've explored. Um, even though we both voted Remain, because yeah, we're good people. <laughs> <laughs> that always used to be the thing we used to do for a joke. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, but we've had many pro-Brexit guests on to, mm. to explore that very mm. point, and it's, it's undeniable. George, it's been a great interview, but there's one other thing that we, before we get to our final question itself, that we really wanted to talk to you about that we don't really see discussed anymore, and I actually think it is a very important point, which is Julian Assange. Oh, yeah. 
for, for anyone who doesn't know anything about it whatsoever, you're a man with very clear thinking who understands that particular situation very well. So just explain to someone who doesn't know anything at all, what is that all about and why is he in the position that he's in now? Well, full disclosure, Julian Assange is a personal friend of mine. Uh, and when I could no longer go into the embassy to see him, I stood outside and sang Frank Sinatra songs to him <laughs> through the window. I'm actually not a bad singer. And <laughs> Julian likes Frank Sinatra. Uh, Julian Assange is a world historic figure. Uh, whatever happens in this court case, he has developed an entirely new model of journalism, uh, one which facilitates uh, the exposure of material and information uh, that the powerful don't want to see disclosed. And that is the very definition of journalism. If nobody doesn't want you to say what you're saying and doing, then what you're saying and doing probably isn't worth uh, uh, a row of beans because if it's not hurting someone somewhere amongst the powerful of what you are revealing then it's probably not worth revealing and so Julian in during the time that I have been his friend has revealed some of the most sensational material uh, ever only some of which he's on trial for uh, he's essentially on trial now for revealing war crimes committed by the United States and others in the invasion and occupation of Iraq mm. and Afghanistan, mm. which when I started out opposing it was a deeply unpopular stance, mine. I could show you my scars. Uh, but you can now, now not find a sentient being in the land who any longer thinks that invading and occupying Iraq was a good idea. Uh, but Julian during that period when things were different revealed big crimes systemic crimes uh in the war logs which showed mass killing of civilians of journalists uh a totally cavalier uh attitude to wiping people out whether they were men women or children whether they were Reuters reporters, uh, whether they were prisoners being forced to commit indecent acts upon each other in the Abu Ghraib prison and be photographed for the entertainment of the torturers afterwards, uh, videotaped and so on. Julian broke all these stories. He also broke a lot of stories. This is why I'm a bit surprised that Donald Trump is pursuing him with the gusto uh, that he is. I still live, by the way, in hope that Donald Trump will pardon him. He also revealed, although he's not on trial for this, the absolute venality of the Clinton crime gang and the so-called Democratic Party in the United States of America. And sure, that benefited Trump, but it benefited all of us to know that Hillary Clinton was a crook and that the Clinton crime family were up to their neck in all kinds of vice, venality, and corruption. We all needed to know that, not least because they were secular saints in uh, Western society. Julian revealed uh, many stories which cast these people in a new light, for which 
he now faces 175 years in a supermax prison in the United States. So this story is important and yet entirely ignored by the very liberal class of journalists and broadcasters that feasted on the dripping roast of his revelations. And so if you were going to ask me, who do I hate most in the whole world? I'd tell you The Guardian. (laughs) The Guardian newspaper personifies everything that I hate in society. And one of the reasons is The Guardian feasted on Julian's stories, ran them over and over again on the front page of their newspaper, and have remained utterly silent while he's persecuted, prosecuted, and banished forever into the bowels of a supermax prison. Even though that very process may one day be used against them. And could be. I mean, if Julian has committed an offense in publishing these stories, so have they in publishing these stories. Their editor could now be on trial. Maybe one day will be. And if we get to a situation where a country, it's America today, it could be Saudi Arabia tomorrow. Uh, Saudi Arabia could, for example. I was a good friend of Adnan Khashoggi, who was murdered by the Saudi uh, dictatorship and literally cut into pieces and flushed into a drain. But when he was living here in London, and in fact, he was living in Washington when that happened to him, the Saudis could have sought his extradition to Saudi Arabia. Now, you might say it's fanciful that any British court would send someone to Saudi Arabia. but It's not that fanciful. If you could send someone to 175 years in a supermax in America, if the Saudis had said, we won't cut his head off, we'll only put him in prison for 175 mm-hmm. years, they could have extradited uh, Adnan Khashoggi. Might have been better than the end that he had. But it could happen to anybody. It could happen to you. It could happen to you. Your seditious output uh, <laughs> here, seditious to somebody. Uh, you know, that would well, make a lot of people very happy. Too, <laughs> I, I tell it you. could well lead to uh, some foreign power uh, extraditing you and destroying you. Now, when this unequal extradition treaty was concluded in secret, in summer, when the House was not sitting, by David Blunkett, Tony Blair's Home Secretary, you may say I I'm a soothsayer. I personally raised with David Blunkett a notional, because I didn't know Julian at that time, a notional case whereby a journalist whistleblower could be extradited without just cause being needed to be shown, could be extradited to the United States under this extradition treaty. David Blunkett gave me a personal assurance that it was on the face of the bill that no one could be extradited for a political crime in his secret extradition treaty that was signed before we even knew it existed. How's that for parliamentary democracy? I was an MP at the time. For here, actually. uh, This very street. And he said to me, he showed me that 
declaration on the face of the bill, uh, on the face of the treaty, that this could not happen. My fear could never come to pass. But it has come to pass. Mm. And the get out is, well, he's not being extradited for a, a political crime. He's being extradited for effectively espionage, even though he's not a citizen of the United States and never set foot there, never committed any crime there. Um, and so the promises, sick transit, Gloria, David Blunkett, where is he now? What, are, what were his promises worth? Mm. Uh, they were uh, not worth the paper uh, that they were written on. And so if you believe in freedom of speech, if you believe in journalism, if you believe in the right of the public to know uh, what is being done in their name on their dollar, you need to be concerned about what's happening to Julian Assange. And lastly, you call me old-fashioned. I believed, still to some extent believe, that the last uncorrupted institution in Great Britain was the judiciary. I know the social caste from which they come. I know they're not elected and cannot be removed. But when I look at how all our institutions have failed, one after the other, the civil service, the media, uh, even the police, they've all failed us, one after the other. I thought the one that was left was the judiciary. I always used to say, and my father before me, actually, long before these institutions uh, failed, I'd rather take my chances in front of a British judge uh, than in front of a British politician or a British journalist or any of a British police officer and so on. And therefore, the abuse of process on view openly, if you care enough to look at it, in this case, has been so gargantuan. I'll give you just one example because time is running. If I told you that you could be extradited, even though it is established fact that all of your meetings with your lawyers were filmed by the prosecuting authority in the United States or their agents, so they know all of what your defense is, I speak as one who was secretly filmed in the embassy. Hmm. Having a pee, talk, everything I said was filmed. I can live with that. But Julian's lawyers were secretly filmed, talking to him, preparing him, and he preparing them for his defense in a court case that might one day have to take place in London. You would say such a case would have to be thrown out. Even if it was a traffic offense, it would have to be thrown out. Mm. If the police were filming you and your discussions with your lawyers. But that happened. Nobody disputes that it happened. All the evidence has been uh, laid in front of this court in London at the Old Bailey, the old lady of British justice. But it will not make a blind bit of difference. The fact that such an abuse of process, and I could give you 500 other abuses of process that have happened, has not made any impact on this case, means that we have to fear for the justice system in our own country itself. And we, not you, me, someone 
wholly British, were led to believe and did believe that British justice was really something, that it was justice, that that statue at top of the Old Bailey of of, uh, the lady with the scales really was something. Turns out it wasn't. Turns out, it seems, unless in the appeal process this is overturned, that Julian is going to be sent to 175 years in prison for the crime of telling the truth. That's a terrible story. And one of the things that I always think about is we really should be incentivizing people to to whistleblow, to sure. reveal these things. That mm-hmm. should be something that's encouraged. You yeah. should be celebrated, paid money, whatever it is. Should be. It's a vital part of any democratic mm-hmm. process. And yet here we are allowing this man to be extradited to another country to face injustice, not justice, but injustice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk to you about that. Me because too, it, me it, too. It's an issue that... Mm that you don't see covered and, frankly, very few people know about, really. Uh, but, George, with that in mind, we've got one more question for you. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about but we really should be? That's a curveball. <laughs> uh, how Manchester United managed to spend £1 billion and produce what we produced against Tottenham Hotspur last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> that's something that's occupying quite a few of my brain cells. £1 billion. Uh, to assemble a squad of misfits, misfiring uh, disasters uh, is uh, is something. Football is a national religion in Britain. Uh, we're quite good at it. We invented it. Manchester United has been my team since 1965. I've never been more miserable about that. I feel guilty that my children are decked out <laughs> Manchester United here and my six-year-old son who's a protege remember his name Torren Galloway you'll still be around when he's a top player uh, he turned to me and said how could Manchester United lose 6-1 to Tottenham Hotspur or to anybody uh, so that is uh, that is something that we should be talking about but it may be off your beaten track did you want a more serious? No, no that, that's, that's fine. No. But I will say this as a West Ham fan, I think it's something that should be celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> no, David Moyes, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Torren Galloway will be playing up front for Everton when we win the league. <laughs> well, I'd be, I'd be honoured if, uh, if he was. My, there, was a, there was an iconic player called Jimmy Gabriel uh, who came from Dundee, my town, to Everton and became uh, in the 1960s an iconic Everton player. So I was brought up always to look for the Everton score. I've got a soft spot for the Everton, but I never thought they'd ever assemble a team like they appear to have assembled now. They are dark horses for the league this year. Remember you heard it. And you at home watching, you cannot see Anton's face, but I've never seen them seen him this happy. Uh, George, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I hope the viewers think so. I mean, to speak for so long, uh, and not be bored for a second uh, is, I think, an achievement. So thanks. Uh, thank you. And if people want to hear you speak for a lot longer, uh, they can tune in, of course, to the Mother World Talk Shows, which uh, is normally on Sundays. You have Still uh, on Sundays. It's free to air every Sunday. And you can watch on Twitter, on uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, multiple platforms, even something called Twitch. <laughs> for gaming, yeah. Uh, and a million people a week 
are now watching it. Well, in fact, a million people are watching it on the night, uh, close to a million and a half over the course of a week. Mm. But we've started a midweek mother of all talk shows, which only costs $1.70. And that's George Galloway, bare knuckle. So <laughs> if you know what I'm like on a Sunday night, imagine what I'm like bare knuckle. Uh, so I hope people can do it. It's on Patreon and on Facebook. Make sure you go and find that. And of course, follow George on Twitter as well. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you very soon. Absolutely, guys, for a live stream, which goes out on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 7 p.m. UK time, and our episodes, which go out on Wednesday and Sunday, again at 7 p.m. UK time. Take care and see you soon. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.